Football Social Daily. Spin like royalty here at kingcasino.com. Over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. Please play responsibly. BeGambleAware.org. Welcome to Football Social Daily. And it's a slightly different podcast today. The football season has finished. We are bringing you these podcasts right the way through the closed season, though. Normally, it's going to be all the latest news, the latest gossip, the latest transfer rumours, all that kind of thing. Today, it's a look back at the season we just had because it is the Football Social Daily End of Season Awards. Looking back on the last 12 months of football because, unbelievably, the Premier League season has been 12 months of football and we're going to hand out some shiny gongs to some people who will probably be grateful for them and some people who will definitely not be grateful for them because it's the good and the bad we're going to be remembering today. I'm Jim Salverson and I've got Niall McCorn with me. Hello, Jim, and the ugly as well. You can't forget the ugly in that conversation. <laughs> Speaking of which, Marley Anderson. <laughs> oh, that is rude. Low blow. <laughs> just, just wow. handed to me on a plate. I couldn't resist. Uh, right, we've got a load of awards to get through today. We're all going to be making our nominations within different categories. So let's kick off with the first one, and it's a positive one. It's moment of the season. The one moment from the entire Premier League season that will live long in your memory. Niall, you can go first on this one. Okay, so mine is Sunday the 26th of July, uh, just around 6pm, when Bournemouth got relegated from the Premier League. That was my moment of the season. Uh, (laughs) No, uh, no, in all seriousness, I found this one probably the hardest one to choose because, let's be honest with, with this, I mean, like you say, Jim, 12 months of a season, 350 plus days, a massive break in the middle... We've had a real topsy-turvy, roller-coaster, turbulent season, whatever descriptive word you want to use to uh, to kind of portray how this 12 months has been. But has actually that much happened? I'm thinking about like proper dramatic moments. The last one that I can think of prior to recording this podcast was Nigel Pearson uh, being sacked as Watford manager. And that was quite a dramatic moment, especially as that was midway through um, the Southampton versus Bournemouth game on a Sunday afternoon, just a couple of games before the end of the season. So that was pretty dramatic. Mm. But in terms of an actual moment of the season, it's quite hard to uh, to try and pinpoint one specifically. Um, you think to the Manchester derbies were both quite good this season. Manchester United weren't really given much of a chance, and they ended up getting uh, they ended up beating Manchester City. Uh, Manchester City losing nine games this season, one of them to Norwich City. That was a pretty big moment all the way back in September. So I found this one really difficult to choose. Um, I couldn't really think back. I mean, because it's been so long, there was no real standout moment for me. Maybe because I'm a neutral Premier League fan, maybe you as a West Ham fan, Jim, and Marley as a Newcastle fan might um, choose something slightly more skewed towards your specific clubs. But as oh, there was definitely no moment of the season for West Ham. <laughs> there was definitely up. no standout event. No. It was the same as what I said just a minute ago, 6pm on the 26th of July when you stayed up (laughs) in the Premier League so but yeah I mean I found this one really difficult I mean we've obviously got loads of awards as you say to to kind of hand out good and bad but for this one I found it really tough I don't know why so maybe I'm kind of looking at you two for a bit of inspiration as uh, as a moment of the season all right let me help you out then because I think for me my moment of the season and I was kind of like you it's been such a long season it's really easy to remember the stuff that's happened in the last six weeks rather than maybe the preceding stuff that happened 12 months ago but we're going to rewind right the way back and I physically remember where I was when this was happening which is why I think it's a standout moment from the entire season and it's Norwich beating Manchester City because it was a terrible season for the Canaries 
it was one that there won't be many moments to remember. But I was in a pub in the Lake District watching this on telly and there was almost like a shocked silence from everyone that was watching the game because no one expected Norwich to do anything in that game. And suddenly... 3-2 victory, Daniel Farker was a genius, everyone expected Norwich's swashbuckling football to show promoted teams how it could be done in the future, how you could trail a blaze in the Premier League rather than kind of just shut up shop and make yourself hard to beat and for a moment, a very brief moment, everything was very rosy for Norwich and they were definitely going to stay up and we all know what happened as a result of that, but everyone loves a giant killing. And I just think, particularly for Norwich fans who've had this season in the Premier League, they've gone back down, we don't know when they're going to come back up. It will be their moment of the season. The one thing they can take away is the time they beat the champions-elect Manchester City. And I just think, it was, it was, it was for me, that was one of the... One of the things I love about the Premier League is the idea that it is a competitive league and everyone can beat everyone else in theory and it kind of proved that for me. I've remembered my moment of the season or I've discovered it. <laughs> Southampton nil, Leicester nine. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I had to choose that, not just because I'm a Pompey fan, but also that was when Leicester it's really... definitely because you're a Pompey fan. Not because Leicester won nine nil then. That's not happened in years unless you're Manchester City. No, seriously, that's partly to do with it. Um, but certainly the way that Leicester kind of announced themselves um, as a serious top four contender, obviously it wasn't to be in the end, but to beat Southampton 9-0, I mean, that was a hell of a moment. Um, mm. Obviously, since the project restart and, and since Christmas, Southampton have turned it around and you have to hold your hands up and say, you know, through gritted teeth, fair play to them because it looked like they were certainly in real trouble at that point. But Partly because of that moment, though, as well. That was kind of maybe the kick they needed to turn it around and motivate them. Certainly, but it's embarrassing. You don't lose 9-0. I mean, if you lose 9-0 to Manchester City, I mean, Watford lost 8-0 to City earlier this season, didn't they? And, mm. you know, you think, wow, OK, that is a smashing. But to lose 9-0 to Leicester, who were yeah. good, but not brilliant, um, that, that was a serious moment. And, you know, I think it just goes to show how, you know, ruthless the Premier League can be at times. Yeah, I remember watching that game and thinking, wow, this, this Leicester team seriously... Um, they could be onto something. Wasn't to be in the end, but certainly that was a, a, a significant moment in the season too. Go on, you can wrap us up, Marley. What is your moment of the season? Uh, I, I've, I was thinking of a couple, to be fair. Um, and one that I, I didn't go for in the end was sort of a close second. Was um, Jamie Vardy getting the golden boot um, towards? Obviously, didn't clinch it until the, the season ended. Obviously, but I mean, the age of the age of him, you know, thirty three years old. Playing in non-league, you know everyone knows the story by now. But to see him go from that that level where he was sort of a raw talent um, to all the way up to the Premier League and to to clinch that um, golden boot was was amazing. And the fact that it was an English player—I mean, not many English players win golden boots these days. It's, you know, last year it was mm-hmm. Aubameyang and and Mane, and I think Aguero shared it shared it three ways. And this week, this year, who was the last English player to win the golden boot? I think it was was it Harry was it Kane? Harry Kane, yeah. maybe. Was it Harry Callas? It wasn't, wasn't that wasn't long that ago, long ago, but, but it's a rare. I think occasion. before him, it was um, Kevin Phillips in like two thousand or something like that. So I could be wrong there, but I mean, basically, there's not that many English winners of it. Yeah, that is my is my kind of point, and especially not at the age of thirty three years old. So he would be up there, but obviously, because I'm a Newcastle fan, the one biased part of the of the the podcast is going to come back to me. Um, and my personal. Um, Highlight of the season was when Matty Longstaff um, on the sixth of October smashed a uh, <laughs> his first goal for Newcastle against Man United at St James's Park. 
just purely because like yeah. I said it at the time, it, it's the one thing that you dream of as a Newcastle fan um, is getting it. You know, you, you dream of being a footballer, you dream of making your debut in in front of you know fifty two thousand people, and then to top it off, he, he slams a twenty five yarder past it, one of the best goalies mm-hmm. in the world, well, kind of uh, De Gea, and um, it flies in the bottom corner and Newcastle win one nil, and it's. Um, it's sort of announced long staff and then obviously it hasn't quite gone as well as people might think since then with his contract and what have you but uh, no one will ever take that moment away from him and no one will ever um, even try to because it's just one of them where he'll remember it for the rest of his life and his career will always be sort of um, remembered by that until he does uh, until he goes and does something else but it'll take some beating and He'll, he'll, he'll be thinking about that pretty much every day from, from then on, really. When you said it was a Newcastle moment, I was convinced you were going to bring up the FA Cup final where the Newcastle fan was helicoptering in the background, live on BBC telly. Jim, if we'd got to an FA Cup final, it would be me doing that. Sorry, not FA Cup final. <laughs> but it was a, <laughs> it was I think FA it was Cup a fourth match. round against Oxford. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, slightly different. <laughs> but thankfully you didn't bring that up. Um, what about Longstaff then? Is he going to stick around at Newcastle? That's kind of like the debate at the moment as to whether he is going to sign a new contract. It's rumbling on and on and on and surely he'll have plenty of suitors if he doesn't sign that deal. Ugh. In short, like everything at Newcastle United at the minute, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Um... It's weird, like, the the fact that his contract ran out in June, but there was no announcement from the club about anything. Um, all we heard that, you know, there was a contract on the table for him, um, and if he signs it, he signs it. If he doesn't, then fair play. And, you know, apparently, some Italian teams were wanted wanted um, wanted him, Udinese, and there was a link of Inter Milan at one point as well, which, I mean, was silly if, if you ask me, but... Um, Yes, I mean, since the restart, he was still uh, in the squad sometimes, like not all the time. Um, I think he had a bit of a knock at one point. Um, but he did sign an ex- he clearly signed an extension to the end of the season. But now the end of the season, the end of the extension season has ended. There's still mm. been nothing from the club. And I mean, the takeover's not helping. There's been nothing from Longstaff himself. So that's not helping. But I mean, when... I said this on on the podcast a while ago, but when everybody is fit in the Newcastle squad, he doesn't get in the squad. Like not the team, he doesn't get in the squad. So for him to get in the squad, he needs to sign a contract, and we need to not loan uh, Bentaleb again, and he needs to take his place in the team, kind of thing, and uh, or in the squad right. at least, because then we've got four centre midfielders, and he's one of them, and Sean, his brother's another one, and then we've got Shelby and Hayden as well, but. I mean, if he doesn't sign a contract, then fair play to him. But I personally think it's the wrong decision. Um, I think he's going to be best showing his talent at, at Newcastle at least for the next couple of years. And then if you know if we don't, you know, provide him with with what he needs, then then fair enough, off you go. But um, I think you should stay for now and and see where he goes in the next couple of years, and then and then make a choice from there. But I mean, I think this all would have been cut and dry by the time. Uh, by this time, if uh, if the uh, takeover had gone through and everything, but as it is, we've got no communication from the Premier League, no nothing from from Mike Ashley or or the owners, or nothing from the Saudis either. So, I mean, anyone's guess is as good as is, is as good as mine. If we're being honest, been here before, haven't we? Yeah, it's Groundhog Day all over again. 
once more. It's a transfer. They take over rumour that's just going to rumble on in the northeast, and everything just gets put on hold, gets paused until it either goes away or actually reaches fruition. And I think I know which is more likely at the moment. Let's move on to the next category. I've just realised we've got no way of picking a winner. We're all making nominations, but we haven't got any winners to be decided from each of these categories. So I guess they just all get a listener can decide the winner, can't they? Amongst themselves. Yeah, maybe we'll do something on Twitter. We should probably have this kind of meeting not on the podcast, not live, before we do it. I'll leave it with you, Marley. You can do something on Twitter with us. Uh, Right, so Unsung Hero is the next category we're going to look at. Who deserves more credit for their exploits this season? Marley, what are you saying? Um, I was thinking about this. I think it's. I think everyone's. You know, who everyone has kind of got what they 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 need. I mean, Chris Wilder, for example, is. You know, would be the first name that sprung to my mind. But he is getting the the plaudits he he receives. I think because you know people are looking at Sheffield United and going, "Bloody hell, what a good job he's done." Mm. So I don't really think he he qualifies for this, in my opinion. Um, a few people, a few. A smaller number of people, I think, uh, are looking uh, looking over Ralph Hasenhutl at Southampton, and I think you know we mentioned the nine nil hammering, which is obviously bad, but in a weird way, that was almost the best thing to happen to Southampton this season because since then, since that game, they've picked up more points than Leicester, for example. So like that just shoot that just shows you. I know Leicester went poor, but it's still, I mean, Southampton picked up forty four points from that game onwards. And that is that is ridiculous. Like they completely turned the corner with that, and now they look like a team with identity and a bit of threat, um, and with a good transfer window behind them in the summer, they could they could easily target sort of um, you know comfortably mid table, if not pushing for for sort of ninth and ninth and tenth. I mean, I don't think they have got quite enough to to compete with all the 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 Royal Rumble that is the top half at the minute, but. You know, um, I certainly think they've they've got a higher ceiling than where they finished this season because, with the likes of Danny Ings bagging goals for fun, they've got the hardest thing to find, which is a, a goal scorer in the Premier League. Mm. Um, and I think they've got the basis of a good team. I think Redmond's a good player. Um, I think they've got a couple of they've always had the youth um, the youth lads coming through, um, and with a few a few smart signings, they can uh, they can go on to do well. But I think Ralph Hasenhutl is as good a manager you're gonna get. At, at that level of where Southampton were, they were like relegation fighters when, when he was appointed, really. Um, and if you look at the type of manager that usually takes over those type of sides, it's that annoying, uh, that old cliche, isn't it? That transfer, uh, the managerial merry-go-round of you know the proper football man, yeah, a one Sam of Allardyce or an Alan Pardew, yeah. Or... Yeah, one of that lot. Exactly, and I mean, Padre only didn't get <laughs> Padre only didn't get linked with the job because he's had it before and he's ruled himself <laughs> out of it. But that's it's that type of manager you get. So, so taking a punt on a um, on a foreign manager who has a little bit more to prove has has in the long run paid off. I mean, it didn't look like it was going to in the short term, but I think long term it's been a very very good decision. Um, mm. And let's see what Southampton can do uh, do next season. You're right. It's very difficult to pick an unsung hero because we live in a world of social media and hyperbole and people are constantly getting praise for doing something minute, something small gets blown out of all proportion and they just get showered with praise. So it's actually quite difficult to find the unsung heroes from a season. And I was tempted to mention Marcus Rashford 
not so much for what he did on the pitch, but for what he did off it during lockdown. And he did receive the praise for this in the end, and he deserves the credit that he did get for raising money and raising awareness for the food poverty in the UK and making sure that no children go hungry during the school holidays when they were looking at cancelling school meals and also for appearing on breakfast TV in a pair of fluffy sliders sitting in his back garden giving an interview. He deserves all that credit for that. So I thought I wouldn't go for him. I thought instead I'd go for Nick Pope because I think he's been one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League this season and he's been not only overshadowed by Ellison and Allison, but sorry Edison and Allison but he's also got Jordan Pickford inexplicably ahead of him in the England running order must which for a goalkeeper of Nick Pope's standing must really wind him up at the moment and he got not really that close to the golden glove I think it was 16 clean sheets that Edison got in the end but you look at how many shots on target he's faced on average a game and whereas Edison's coping with 2.8 shots a game you've got Nick Pope coping with 4.4 shots a game and so yeah he's not going to keep as many clean sheets but arguably he's had more of an impact on Burnley's season than Edison has on Manchester City's season so I think he's a great goalkeeper deserves credit and probably is England's number one or certainly should be England's number one in Gareth Southgate's thinking so there that's my unsung here I'm going for Nick Pope Good shout, to be fair. I just think with the England thing, and I've said this on the podcast before, I still think Pickford will be Southgate's number one choice just purely because of the distribution. Um, Nick Pope's unbelievable uh, uh, with the shots that he saves and sometimes he pulls off saves and you think, how has he done that? I mean, he's obviously got the the range. He's a, he's a tall guy. He's athletic. He, he's good saving the ball with his feet, which we saw David De Gea being really good at for the first few seasons he was in the Premier League. Sometimes an underrated skill, being able to save the ball with your feet effectively and kind of get the ball away from the danger area. But Jordan Pickford's distribution in the Premier League for a goalkeeper is second to none, bar maybe Edison. Um, Allison obviously well, stick Mason Mount in goal then because he's got good distribution and he can't save a ball either just... so he might as well go and go on ahead uh, I of Paul see what, Jordan Pickford I see what you're saying but I just think for the way that Southgate has kind of moulded this England style and, and this England side that he's looking at I mean you can tell with the sort of players that he selects I mean John Stones is probably going to get in the England squad for the next couple of for the next couple of squads just even though he hasn't really played just purely because he can play with the ball at his feet and I think the Maguire the same I mean people might say Maguire's not had the best season at centre-back for United compared to what they expected from him but he'll be in the England squad because one he's one of England's best defenders and two he's comfortable with the ball at his feet for instance the likes of John Terry and Rio Ferdinand could do that years ago we're starting to see that now with England players and I think that is Southgate's blueprint so as much as I agree with you I think Pope or even Dean Henderson might even be worth with a shout of getting in the England squad whether it does fall on those two to displace Pickford, I'm not so sure because that's a decision Southgate will have to make. Who's your unsung hero then, Niall? Who are you going for? Well, I had a couple. Well, I had three actually and I couldn't narrow them down, but I'll go through them anyway just quickly. My first one's John McGinn from Aston Villa. Um, I think he's an unsung hero. I just think it's no coincidence that when he returned after the restart, um, after his injury, which laid him off for a, for a while and he started to get back to full fitness, Villa actually improved And a lot of credit does get given to Jack Grealish, and rightly so, for what he's done for them this season. He's been exceptional. But barring the last game of Project Restart, last Sunday, where Grealish obviously scored and Villa stayed up, Jack Grealish was shackled a bit after the restart, I thought. I didn't think he was effective. Teams were doubling up on him, tripling up on him at some stage. And, you know, we've said it so many times on the podcast, you could probably make a whole highlight reel of us saying, if you stop Jack Grealish, you stop Aston Villa. Well... 
you know, everyone says, get the ball to Grealish and he'll make things happen. But I think John McGinn is actually responsible for a lot of that. I mean, someone's got to give the ball to Grealish. And I think a lot of the time, John McGinn's responsible for a little bit uh, more of the industry in the middle of the park. And considering it's his first season in the Premier League as well, I think he's adapted really, really well. I mean, McGinn, he isn't a goal or assist machine. but I don't think that was ever really the case for him anyway. I just think like Grealish, he's good with the ball at his feet. He rarely makes a mistake. He's very consistent. He is a six or seven out of 10 every week, it seems, even when Villa are losing. So, you know, that has to count for something. So... I'd probably go for top of my list, but it's close. John McGinn as my unsung hero. But my other choice would be Ricardo Pereira at Leicester, another player who's had an injury-struck season. Of course, he hasn't featured at all since the restart. He's out long-term with an injury, which, you know, he's been a huge miss for Brendan Rodgers. And in fact, the two players I'm going to mention now are both Leicester players. The first is Pereira. Now, if I was going off a gut feeling with... Uh, John McGinn and going off the good old eye test with what I've seen from him this season then I'm doing the total opposite here with Pereira and I'm just going to spam the stats because he's got an average of just over four tackles a game just under two interceptions per game 2.6 clearances per game and nearly two dribbles per game too so you know that's his defensive statistics but also his attacking influence has been excellent as well and you know if you if you if you look at the statistics and and you see you know in terms of the list of premier league players if you're looking at tackles this season the spider Aaron Wambasaka at Manchester United um, as expected the most tackles this season but then in third place is Ricardo Pereira with 119 um, and the person in second place with the most tackles in the Premier League this season is Wilfred Ndidi, who's my other choice, another Leicester player for an unsung hero. Now, people listening to the show might think, why are you choosing Leicester players? You called them bottlers the other day. They are bottlers. <laughs> they are bottlers. And the reason that they're bottlers is because they had such a big gap and they should have held on to it. They didn't. As Marley said, even Southampton picked up more points than they did um, pretty much since the restart or the turn of the year. So it just goes to show, you know, how good a position they got themselves in. And I think a lot of that, downturn in form just after Christmas uh, coincided with the absence of Wilfred and Didi who I think has been absolutely mm. brilliant for them and so understated in the middle of the park you know 128 tackles he does all that labour I mean Leicester seem to have a real knack at the moment and I don't know when this is going to run dry or if it even will run dry but replacing quality players with quality players, um, especially ones that are kind of diamonds in the rough, so to speak. And Golo Conte leaves, goes to Chelsea, and they find Wilfred Ndidi, and he, he's just been excellent. You look at the likes of Harry Maguire leaving to Manchester United, Shagla Soyuncu comes in and has a brilliant season at centre-half, apart from kicking Callum Wilson up into the up into space the other day when he got sent off. But apart from that, he's been brilliant. So I think a lot of the Leicester players um, probably don't get the credit they deserve. And I think they're two of them, Pereira and Ndidi for me, two of the unsung heroes this season, but probably just pipping them, um, especially because Villa stayed up. Probably wouldn't have been the case if they got relegated, but John McGinn. I guess a lot of the Leicester City praise is, I mean, as a squad, you look at the players they've got 1-11, to 11, and they didn't deserve to be in third place. And they didn't finish in third place. They probably didn't deserve to be top six in terms of the players they've got. But it's how they play as a unit. But also those individual performances, the likes of Ndidi, who probably just performed 10% above their expected level that really kind of gave them that early season form. So yeah, bang on, they deserve to be that unsung hero status, particularly for the first three quarters of the season. I call them bottlers. I'm not going to go back on that. I mean, you can't be 14 points clear and not hold on. I mean, that's a massive... That's mammoth. In the Premier League, that's huge. They, they, they probably just reverted to the form that you'd expect from them. But that's that, the thing, but isn't it? They probably you, just lost their edge. I know people were saying, and Michelle Owen said this on the podcast on Monday, that, you know, at the start of the season, if you went 
forward 12 months and said, you're going to finish in fifth, get a Europa League spot, you'd probably say as Leicester City fans, oh, that's brilliant. But mm. put it into perspective where they were, the form they showed. They beat Southampton 9-0. They had players in excellent form. And it, the wheels completely fell off. They blew their chance of a cup final in the Carabao Cup against Aston Villa. This could have been one of the best seasons in Leicester's history. Nothing's going to top the title in 2016. But this was the closest, I think, that they're going to get for a long while to having a real successful season. Finishing the Champions League and possibly win the League Cup. In the end, they fell at the semi-final hurdle to Aston Villa and City obviously went on to win the Carabao Cup and they dropped out of the top four on the last day. So, you know, I don't think Brendan Rodgers deserves stick and I don't think the Leicester players deserve stick for their achievements this season because fifth is an achievement, no doubt about it. But think of what might have been bit of a bottle job if you ask me let's move on to signing of the season which has taken some consideration for me this one I didn't want to go for Bruno Fernandes because it seemed too obvious Um, I was tempted to go for Jared Bowen at West Ham (laughs) (laughs) but I knew I'd get mocked for it purely because I think Ultimately, I think West Ham probably wouldn't have stayed up without him. I think he's had such you an impact on right, the team. You would have been right, Jim, as well. Yeah, so I'm not doing it. I'm going to make the case now, but pretend <laughs> I'm not nominating him. But he kind of provided that link between the midfield and the forward line, and I do think he was instrumental in West Ham staying up. It was a Obviously, I mocked it at the time, but it was an inspired move by the Morsiah to uh, not play him for the first few games after signing <laughs> for 20 million quid and just leave him on the bench for ages before you played him. Obviously inspired, but it kind of worked in the end. So that's not my nomination. I'll get onto mine in a little bit, but Marley, who is your signing of the season? Oh, well, I'll tell you what, it's not bloody Joel Linton, is it? <laughs> I, I can't look past I can't look past Bruno Fernandes, if we're being honest, just because I've never, I can't remember the last time one man transformed a team's... Uh fortunes as he has I mean there are haters that you know call him Bruno Penandes and well that's hilarious that's <laughs> proper Twitter banter that but um, you know is the way I mean Man United before Christmas were depressing to watch like really slow really lethargic everything was forced everything was you know just not didn't, didn't flow there was nothing to them there's no dynamic uh uh, attack or anything like that and then they brought him in and it's he just gives them absolutely everything he's one of them players that have just completely transformed how a team plays and how a team does in terms of you know picking up points and everything I mean he's got he's got a few goals and assists which obviously helps um, but for me it's more his, his energy and his influence on the game I think people I think when you play with with good players, when a, when a good, good player comes into your squad, it just raises everyone because they think, right, we've got a chance now because Bruno's on the pitch. And Pogba at his peak does a similar thing, but obviously Pogba's had a lot of uh, you know issues over the last couple of years and will he stay, will he go, I, I don't know. But when he's at his best, he's a similar sort of level to, to where Fernandez is, is playing at the minute. I mean, he's... He's completely transformed Man United and I think he's basically the reason why they finished third in the Premier League and I think if they hadn't got him over the line, I think Man United would be lucky to get seventh um, because that's how that's just how far off they were. They never looked likely to, to trouble the Champions League spots, never mind uh, never mind finish third after, after everything. So um, I can't really not go for him. I can't see anyone else who I can make a case for over over what he's done, especially in such a, a short time frame as it's well. It's really difficult, isn't it? 
I mean, it's really. I look at it every time and go, Bruno Fernandez is a sorry. Bruno Fernandez has been a great signing, but how can one player have so much influence on a team? But that, on the face of it, that's exactly what he's done. He's gone in there and he's lifted the entire Manchester United squad, and he's made the players around him play better. It's impossible to ignore that. Yeah, I think as well. Also, um, last summer was over a year ago. I was tra- starting to really struggle about all the all the. Uh, the transfer windows are merging into one in my head, so I'm like, who who actually came in last summer? Because it's been that long ago, um, and it's hard to bloody remember them all, to be honest. Um, another one is Juan Basaka. I think Juan Basaka has been great, but again, uh, I can't really look past Bruno Fernandes. So, no, I see what you guys agree or not. I mean, yeah, like you say, I think Bruno Fernandes has been the best January sign-in in recent memory in the Premier League. The January transfer window over the last three or four seasons has been terrible. Just rubbish. It's not exciting. No one wants to spend any money. Players are more expensive in January. They want to get all their business done in the summer uh, and maybe bring in one or two loans in January. Manchester United wanted Bruno Fernandes before and they never got him. And just makes you wonder how good that Manchester United could have been this season if they had had Fernandes from the start. Um, and we know that they kind of go up and down in form United. They definitely ran out of steam at the end. I mean, the last day of the season against Leicester, Fernandes was, was rubbish. It was probably the worst game that he's had. But... He still popped up with a penalty. And this annoys me. This narrative on football Twitter about, oh, he's a pen machine, so therefore goals don't... It's like penalty goals aren't valued as much. Scoring a penalty is obviously... It's easier, but there's pressure. So, I mean, it's like... You know, Plenty it, of people it, that miss them. Exactly. Why is these stats being discounted as goals? I mean, he's always popping up with a goal and assist. Like I said, at the last game of the season against Leicester, was rubbish, still popped up with a goal. Although it's from the penalty spot... He's still there and he's still got to put the ball in the back of the net. Only only since the 1st of February when Fernandez officially kind of signed for Manchester United at the end of the January window, only Ronaldo and Messi have more goal involvement since that date than Bruno Fernandez does, which mm. which just goes to show just how good he is. I mean, I think this nonsense over penalties don't count. I mean, if you want to say penalties don't aren't valued, then speak to Alan Shearer because he scored about 200 of the bits. <laughs> so I'm just, oh, you know... Oh, God, let's not get Marley on to Alan Shearer. <laughs> why does that... That doesn't devalue how good Alan Shearer was as a striker because he scored a load of penalties. In fact, that adds value to you because if you can score penalties and you're trusted with that responsibility, you know, you're kind of mm. given this opportunity to score from the penalty spot and it's entrusted to you as a player. The, the quality that you show is entrusted to you by the manager and by your fellow teammates to put the ball in the back of the net. And Fernandez does that. I mean, I just, I don't see what the problem is with him scoring loads of penalties. I, f- I find it nonsense. No. Frank Lampard scored hundreds of penalties in his career. Um, you I know, don't think it, it devalues it for, for, any, it for anybody do. who... It can't for, do. Nobody who's talking sense. It, it's people who are trying to wind other people up, surely. I think it's really difficult to make a case for Bruno Fernandez not to get a signing of the season. But I'm going to throw in another player into the mix who... I think probably gets overlooked quite a lot. And I was even surprised when I was looking into this that he was assigning this season because he'd been on loan the season before. But Raul Jimenez at Wolves, what a signing he's been for Wolves. 30 million quid in the summer, making his loan deal permanent. And he's just one of the best all-round strikers in the Premier League at the moment. Good link-up play, takes people on, excellent finisher, started pretty much every single game for Wolves this season, apart from one, I think, in the Premier League. And he cost 30 million quid. 
I mean, how often can you get a player like that for 30 million quid at the moment? I think it's an excellent piece of business for Wolves. And it doesn't just show what a great player he is. It shows the kind of sensible business that Wolves do. They had a player on loan. They arranged a fee that at the end of the loan, they could take him on full time. It worked out. They completed the transfer. And how often do Wolves sign players where it goes to up? It kind of it never happens. They're just a really... <laughs> well-run football club and I think Raul Jimenez is the epitome of that I think he was a great signing well he won't get won't get the plaudits for someone like Bruno Fernandes because he hasn't turned the team around like Bruno Fernandes does but he's such an important player in that Wolves team yeah 17 goals this season 17 goals last season so you can't say that he's not consistent it's not like he's bagging 21 season and five the next I mean 17 two seasons in a row I think also I mean we talked about underrated player just now or unsung hero of the season Adama Traore has been excellent really stepped up his output this season his production rate in terms of assists has been far better than that of last season obviously that's benefited Jimenez so um, I just think that his age might be a, a cause for concern. A lot of people suggesting that, you know, anyone on the hunt for a striker might poach Jimenez from um, from Wolves, but he's 29. I think he'll be 30 be- before too long. Same age as Aubameyang. Both goals, uh, both players, real sharpshooters in the Premier League. So uh, I don't think he would do too wrong to, to stay at Wolverhampton Wanderers, even if his head is turned uh, with a move elsewhere and you talk about summer signings I think Wolves brought in Pedro Neto in the summer as well and he's been Mm. decent for them this season so I think you're right Jim I mean it's hard to think of a Wolves signing really in the last two windows which has been a flop I mean Daniel Podence came in in January from Olympiacos and although he didn't really play before lockdown since the restart he's been really good he's been really good in his first sort of flashes for the club so so yeah I mean Raul Jimenez is is a good shout that wraps up the first little bit of this podcast our Football Social Daily end of season awards we're going to be back in a second we've been quite positive so far so in the next little bit of podcast we're going to turn our eyes a little bit more to the bad side and we're going to be talking flop of the season we'll do that next on Football Social Daily Football Social Daily Spin like royalty here at kingcasino.com. Over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. Please play responsibly. BeGambleAware.org. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. This is the end of season awards. Looking back at the Premier League season, the seemingly never-ending Premier League season that has finally ended. Our next award is probably a little bit more mean-spirited than we have been so far because we're going to talk flop of the season. The worst bit of business from any Premier League club this year. I'm going to go first on this one because step forward, no one would be able to argue with this. Step forward, £8 million signing, David Luiz. (laughs) David (laughs) Luiz. Terrible bit of business for Arsenal. Brilliant bit of business for Chelsea's accountants. They all deserve bonuses after offloading him for eight million quid. But, I mean, there are very few defenders that strike as much fear into their own defence as people like David Luiz. I was trying to look at the stats as to how many goals he's personally cost Arsenal this season, and I couldn't find an exact number, so I've estimated it to be around... At least 500 goals, <laughs> well, I think, have been conceded. Well, he's given away him. five penalties in the Premier League this season, which is the most yep. for any single player in a Premier League season. So um, the thing is with David Luiz, and I really like David Luiz, and I think more personally from what he brings to the dressing room, apart from a complete lack of confidence, um, but he's got a bit of, you know, he's got a bit of a character to him. Um, the, the most frustrating thing about David Luiz 
is you see him in games like the FA Cup semi-final against Manchester City. Well, he was immense. He was absolutely imperious. I mean, everything he did was fantastic. He's got a brilliant range of passing. I think he'd be better suited in a defensive midfielder role because, you know, he's, he's rash, he's well, rash well, and he brings players down all the time, especially when he doesn't need to jump into challenges. That's what defensive midfielders do. They break up play and I just think that maybe he'd be better suited to that role. He's got a really good, like I say, good vision. He can strike a dead ball. Um, I just think he'd be better suited to, to playing in the middle of the park in a more deep role than at centre-back. And that's my frustration because I think he's been underused for the majority of his, of his career. In the, I just don't think he's a centre-back. I really don't. I can't remember. I can't remember which Chelsea manager it was, but there was a Chelsea manager that, for half a season, played him in that kind of defensive midfield role, and he excelled. It was it was Di Matteo, yeah. I think, um, shortly after they won the Champions League. Yeah, he played in the defensive midfielder role. I mean, he, he's capable of doing that, and I think actually his mentality and the way he plays, he's more suited to doing that. David Luiz, I think, like I say, he's rash, jumps into challenges. I mean, the penalty he gave away the other day was just stupid mm. against Watford. Yeah. So stupid. And you think, why are you jumping in there? And maybe it's panic. Maybe it's um, a lack of understanding of the position, which you'd be surprised at considering he's played centre-back for the majority of his career. But if you bring in down players like that, if you do it in the middle of the park, you're getting booked. But there's not going to be a penalty. It's going to be a free kick 40 yards out or 30 yards out, and you kind of got a chance to regroup. And that's what defensive midfielders do well. That's the, you know, the old Pep Guardiola tactic of, of foul them when they're on the break. I mean, everyone does it in the Premier League. David Luiz will be an absolutely master exponent of that. So, yeah, I, I just find it strange. It's frustrating because you see him perform the way he did for Arsenal against Man City in the FA Cup semi-final. And then you see him... Uh, against Man City in the first game after the restart. It's like chalk and cheese, same opposition, totally different player almost. And it's so frustrating, but yeah, I, I can't disagree. I'm a bit, I'm normally a big fan of David Luiz. I think, he, I think he can offer a lot and that's the frustration. I don't think he really shows how good he could really be. Got a 12-month contract extension as well just before lockdown, so he's going to be the thorn in Arsenal's side for another 12 months at least. Sounds like me and Nyla are in agreement, Marley. So have you got anything different to throw into the mix in terms of flop of the season? Uh, yeah, I do. Firstly, I cannot believe that none of you have said Joel Linton and got my back straight. <laughs> With Joel Linton, I think you, your scouts should know and your and somebody at some point of a transfer process should know that he's not a centre-forward. Like he's not a he's not a bully he's not a, he's not a Brazilian Andy Carroll he's not a, a Rondon replacement he's not that kind of player so someone along the way should know should should realize that he's not playing in that role for Hoffenheim and he's only scored eleven goals because he's scored them from the wing which is a good return from the wing um, and he's scored them from a wing in a front three system which we've never played I don't think I can't remember a time in my life when Newcastle played with three centre like you know two wingers and a centre forward like in a 4-3-3 formation so I don't think that's I mean I know his, his return's been poor but I think you've got to you, you've got to look into why it's why it's been poor Um one of the reasons I'm not sure how you've turned this into a Jolington appreciation podcast, Marley. <laughs> this is supposed to be a flop of the season. You're telling us why Jolington's great. Well, I'm coming onto it now because one okay. man who is being played in his best position um, relatively regularly um, and cost uh, a lot of money is from a team that always wins the transfer market yet ends up crap on the pitch, and it's Everton's <laughs> Alexi Wolby. Who, I mean, he, he moved for I think it was twenty eight million last summer. He's made forty uh, twenty five appearances for Everton. 
this year. Uh, he's scored one goal and he's not done much, really. He's not, mm. I can't think of anything he will be did this season where I thought, bloody hell, he looks, he looks like a good player. Like, at the time, when every, everyone knew that Everton were after after uh, Wilfred Zaha, but everyone else also knew that Crystal Palace wanted, I think, 60 or 80 million for him, as, basically as much as they can get. Um, so they, they priced out, and it was like they, you know, they, they downgraded and thought, right, we'll take Iwobi from Arsenal, who's not quite playing every every year, uh, every week, and we'll see what he does this year, and, and we'll go from there, but... People at the time said, we don't know what Iwobi does. He scored 11 goals in 100 games for Arsenal in the league and one in every 10 for a winger. That works out at three or four a season. That's not really that, that special. Um, does he make assists? Not really. Does he put? Does he cross the ball well? Not really because he plays from, plays from the left, so you'd expect him to try and dribble inside a little bit more. Um, and I just think he's been really, really poor. Um yeah, I don't think it's been a massive surprise because I personally don't think he's a very good player. Um, I don't know whether, I don't know why that is. I think he's, as I said, the, you know the the issue with Joe Linton is you can argue he's not playing in his best position. I think he will be is playing in his his favoured left midfield role. He's one of the sort of the bigger names in that team in terms of his his um, his transfer transfer fee commanding sort of respect he's not a guy who's sort of came through the the academy and he's trying to sort of become one of the top players he's came in for a massive fee you expect a big output for him uh from him and i don't think he's he's done that at all um i don't think anyone expected much from him I mean, well that's, most that's people the thing looked at that transfer and it, it looked bonkers at the time it's it's been proved right hasn't it i mean everyone yeah. said what 30 million for for Iwobi? is that is that real and then Everyone was probably said that with a kind of an asterisk in the back of the head and thought, yo, watch him go and be absolutely mint now. Watch him go and mm. have a season where he, he scores 12 goals and gets another 10 assists and looks looks great. But everyone was kind of proved, right? I, I think. I just think he's done what, what's expected. And what is not expected of a £30 million player is, you know, one one goal. I think it's been a shocking signing for Everton, but you can kind of put that caveat on most Everton signings, and um, it could well be the same this window as well. We're going to turn our attention to this window with our next award, which is not really an award. It's more a discussion point, I guess. It's the vulture. So if you could swoop in and grab one player from each of the relegated teams from the Premier League this season, which no doubt will be happening. Every Premier League team will be looking over the squad lists of Bournemouth, Norwich and Watford and deciding which pieces of talent they want to pick up. Who would that player be? So one player from each team. We'll try and rattle through this a little bit because it could go on and on and on, particularly if we've all got different players. Um, make a nomination for each. Now you can go first. Not The Bournemouth player, Norwich player and a Watford player. OK, well, I give them a fair bit of stick and uh, I do think that they do have some decent players. Um, starting with Bournemouth, my pick, if I was a vulture and came in to sweep one of their players, it would either be Nathan Ake or Josh King. I think Nathan Ake is already going to be on his way to Manchester City by the looks of things as kind of a, uh, a backup reinforcement centre-half. So I think Josh King, for me, 50 goals for Bournemouth, arrived from Manchester United. Um, he does have an annoying injury record, but I still think in a more dynamic system, he could, he could really kind of do, do a job for someone. I mean, I don't think he would he would get into a kind of a top half um, Premier League side, really. But I, I certainly think that if he did, he could he, he would be useful coming off the bench. But I think he does deserve to 
maintain his place in the Premier League. You don't score 50 goals in the top flight, especially off the wing, um, if you know good. So for me, Bournemouth would be Josh King. Uh, for Watford, I'm... Kyle. Yeah. Do you, do you not think that people think he's a better goal scorer than he actually is? Uh, well, I, I, think off the, I think off the wing, he's... He's not he's not a bad choice. I mean, if we're talking about players from relegated clubs, Bournemouth, 2016-17, as you say, 16 goals. 17-18, eight goals. Last season, 12 goals. And this season, six goals. And let's not forget that he spent a fair amount of this season injured and uh, had suspension as well. And Bournemouth got relegated. So I don't think it's too bad a return. Um, 48 goals in 161 appearances. So he does fall just shy of the 50 that I mentioned. But um, over five seasons, 10 goals a season, roughly. I don't think that's that's too bad. I know that the figures are skewed, as we've mentioned. I think he's useful enough. I think he's useful enough. Um, you know, so we'll have to wait. We'll have to wait and see. I mean, Manchester United were interested in in him at one point when they were really struggling. And in the end, they went for Odin Agallo, didn't they? So, yeah, for for me, I'd go Josh King. I see what you're saying, Marley. Maybe he is slightly overrated in terms of his of his figures and stuff like that. But I still think he could do a job in a bottom half Premier League side. So he would be my pick from Bournemouth. Uh, from Watford, I'm going with Abdullah Decore. Um, just because I think the way that he's shown that he can be versatile, not only in the middle of the park, but also deployed further forward, which um, we saw Nigel Pearson do when he came in as Watford manager earlier on this season before he got sacked. He put Decore a bit further forward and that certainly seemed to improve Watford's fortunes, whether he can kind of maintain that level of consistency and maintain that level of performance further up the park than his usual central midfield role. I'm not so sure, but for me, I'd pick Decore. I think Dale Lefeu would be a shout, but he gets injured too often. Um, and for Norwich, I mean, take your pick. Anyone between Max Aarons, Todd Campwell, Jamal, Lewis, any of them, pick any of them. Um, I think they've got a wealthy young talent there at Norwich City. So so take your pick. Uh, I mean, we could easily just go for one each out of those three names that I've just mentioned. So yeah, any of those three, um, I think Norwich will look very different next season when they start in the championship than they will do this ca- the, the end of this campaign. Certainly for Norwich, I went for Max Ahrens. I like Campwell as well, but he just doesn't get picks because of his hair which is appalling. So he gets left on the sidelines. But Max Ahrens is a great fullback, can play on either side. He's really good going forward. He's 19, probably needs to temper his fondness for going forward a little bit if he's going to join another Premier League club, unless it was the likes of uh, Liverpool who really pushed their fullbacks forward. But I think there's a huge talent there. Uh, who are you going for, Marley, for your three picks? Um, I was looking at this uh, yesterday. I did a I did an article that's on our website now about the five players that that we should um, that Premier League clubs should be looking at. Um, and I sort of I was doing a fair bit of sort of looking into them and seeing what what kind of roles you would expect. But for me, I mean, picking them picking them for for Newcastle. I mean, the one the one number one choice I would have is Emi Buendia from Norwich. Um, I think he's been. He's been really, really, really good. Um, the fact that he's he's twenty three, which is the big, the big pulling point for me. Um, you know, he's got a lot of uh, a lot of development still to to get better and to become a really top player. I think they signed him for one and a half million uh, euros from Getafe, and he wasn't he, he was sort of in and out of the Getafe team. wasn't really a, a number number one sort of starter. Um, so Norwich have done really well to get him. Um, in the first place, and he's proved how good he is. I think the one uh, statistic that stood out for me was the amount of tackles he's made. I think he's made 82 tackles this season, um, and he's a. I think he played predominantly on the left wing or an attacking midfield role. So, if you look at that, that's more than Max Ahrens, who plays right back in the same team. Um, and I compared it as well to to Wilfred Zaha. I mean, it's probably not the, the the greatest because Zaha literally never puts his foot in, but 
they're both left wingers, so it's, I think it's a fair comparison. I think he put in sort of three times as many tackles as, as Zaha. Um, so the fact that that proves that he's he's comfortable and getting his foot in there and mm. you know trying to win the ball back high up the pitch. Um, I think he got seven assists as well in a in a team that finished bottom of the league. I think that's a, a very good uh, return if you're if you're putting him in a a better team. Um, than the Norwich who score more goals, I think that turns into easily twelve, thirteen assists. Um in you know, if he's feeding a decent strike, if you think of someone like, you know, Danny Ings at Southampton, for example, but you know, if he came to Newcastle we'd have to buy a, a decent striker for him to pass to, which is a which is a problem. Um but he would be the one for me. I think he wouldn't cost a massive amount. You know, you might get him for sort of twenty, twenty five million, maybe, maybe a little bit more. Um, but he'd be the one I'd take from Norwich, definitely. Um, I think Aaron's Aaron's been linked with with um, Bayern Munich, hasn't he, this week? And Godfrey's been linked with really, with, yeah, yeah. Apparently, they're looking at stealing him uh, for twenty million quid and using him as a backup to uh, Pavard. So that's, yeah. I mean, if you can get that move, fair fair play. Um, you know, I think Godfrey as well will go to a, a big a bigger club. Um, like someone like a Spurs, I think there was a couple of uh, German teams looking at him, Leipzig and Dortmund apparently apparently uh, looking at him. So I expect a, a fair few to go from Norwich, but I would pick uh, I pick Buendia and me. Um, as for Bournemouth, the one I would probably go for is David Brooks. Um, I do think he's yes, I agree. He's he was one my pick for player. Bournemouth. You look at him and you go right. He's he's clearly a Premier League player. He spent a lot of a lot of uh, time out, out injured with a, a bad injury um, this season, and that he's only sort of came back just after the restart, where he got uh, he got back to full fitness. And I just think he's one that he'll. I think he'll probably stay because of his, you know, just to get some form after his injury. I think people might look at him and think, right, let's let him prove his fitness first. Um, but I think if he proves his fitness, his value goes up. So. Why not just uh, why not take him now? He comes in off that right hand side with his left foot very very well, um, and it's interesting as well that he came from uh, he came from Sheffield United because if he'd stayed there, he'd probably have uh, you know he'd, well, he'd still be in the Premier League. Put it that way. So really versatile player as well. He played at number ten for Wales. He's played on the right for Bournemouth. Chris Wilder used to play him as a striker. So he's a really kind of he's one of those players that has the ability to play all over the pitch. What I was surprised about when I was looking at him is that he's 22, because he looks 12. I can't talk on that one, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but he, he'd be my pick from uh, from Bournemouth. Um, Watford, Watford's a, a stranger one, because I don't, I don't massively rate the characters they've got in the Watford team. I think one of the reasons they've gone down is because I don't think many people care about Watford in that team. I don't think Dekure... For example, I think he's wanted to leave for for a, a year, probably. Um, I think people like Pereira are good players in their own right, but in terms of relegation fight, you don't really want them, um, them sort of characters. I think Dale Lefeu's good. Um, he's got a bit of a dodgy uh, a dodgy injury. I mean, he's only 26 as well, so there's a, there's plenty of uh, of development left in him. Um, but if I if if I was picking a player from from Watford for uh, a Newcastle team, it would probably be um, it'd probably be Decore, but I don't expect him to to stick around. I just think I think he'll. I mean, PSG were linked with him. I think a year ago. I think if they came in and, and spotted a, 
a cut price bid, it'd be, it'd be straight off, uh, straight mm. off back there. So, um, other than that, I think people have talked about Will Hughes as well, but uh, to be honest, I don't really rate Will Hughes massively. Um, I'm just thinking of players coming into the Newcastle side. I mean, out of everyone, I think bloody Troy Deeney would probably do a good job in the Newcastle side. If you're thinking of a of a Rondon type striker, someone who can bounce balls off and who will fight for you, you know, what about Troy Deeney? But I don't think Deeney's a very good player, but that's that's where Watford are for me. I don't really think, I don't look at them and go, I would love to have him in my team. I just think there hmm. there are a lot of players that are on big wages and struggle to to sort of fight for what you're going for. And I don't think that's a, a, a good characteristic to have um, and to pluck back into the, the Premier League kind of thing. So out of everyone, you know, maybe Decore, maybe Deeney, but maybe Dale Fay as well. But I'm not, to be honest, I wouldn't be going near Watford with uh, with my checkbook anytime soon. I agree with you with Watford. There wasn't many players in that team that I go, oh, really fancy getting in. But actually the one I've picked, and we've done my Norwich and Bournemouth picks already, but the one I picked from Watford, I actually picked with a team like Newcastle in mind. And he kind of fell off the, a cliff a little bit given his early season form. But Ismaili Assar, I think, looked very good in spells at Watford. Fast, creative, cut in from the right, gave a little bit of width to that Watford team as well. And I can imagine him playing in a Newcastle front three in kind of like giving them a bit more depth because they've struggled when the likes of um, St Maximum hasn't been fit. And he's kind of someone that would slot into that, I think. And I mean, he started like a house on fire. It was, was it four goals in five games? I think at the start of the season. I don't know. I think it. I don't think that's quite right. I think it took him ages to to find his feet, if I remember rightly. I, I just he don't took, think he took been... a while. Then he had a, a real purple patch, didn't he? Where he looked very good all of a sudden. Or was it not the first? No, I don't think he's been so consistent. Long ago. <laughs> I know it was ages ago, and then, and, and all fairness to you, it, it was a long time ago. I don't think he's been personally consistent enough, considering he was Watford's record signing. You know, you'd, you'd expect that he kind of joined the club with a view to. To really pushing on and, and helping Watford progress up the table, but obviously wasn't to be. Club had been relegated. He did look disappointed at the end when uh, when Watford were confirmed as going down. But I just don't think Sar's been consistent enough, um, and I don't think he was that cheap either. Actually, um, when you look at his price tag, I can't remember exactly what it was. It's 30, but I re- thirty million quid. Of course, you know. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So there we go. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I personally wouldn't go for him. I just think, like you say, Jim, he'd be back up, and even if he is back up with the consistency he's shown, you know. You, He'd need to be a slightly more consistent than he has been. I just wonder if there was a team that was playing football that suited him a little bit more. I mean, he's not a Nigel Pearson player, is he? And I wonder if there was a team that he fitted in better with. He, you get better performances out of him. Yeah, I mean, we have to wait and see. I mean, we don't. Really, I don't know anything about him from before he moved to Watford, so I don't no. know what system he's better in. I, I've got to be honest. I confess, I don't know really anything about Ishmael Assar. I'm happy to admit that, but from what we have seen, maybe you could say that the system doesn't suit him. That's why he hasn't been consistent. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely the jury's still out on him for me. There you go, Watford. You can hang on to your players for, for next season for your championship, your championship promotion campaign. Uh, final award of this section is going to be the red card, which is who or what you think deserves to be expelled from the Premier League and never, ever seen again. So who's gone for VAR? <laughs> I thought you two did, so I, I went for something else. No, I did. I went for something else. Is that Was that your pick now? Uh, it, it wasn't, but I'll go for it. VAR, there we go. That should be <laughs> expelled from the Premier League, never to be seen again. Uh, I think VAR, it's been up and down, as we expected, but the whole point with, with VAR was to be more accurate with decisions. 
I mean, it's just been as clear as mud, hasn't it? There's been no consistency whatsoever. Um, you know, a lot of the time... I mean, how many times... There was one weekend where there was three VAR calls and the PGMOL came out and admitted that all three of them were mistakes. You know, that, that's that's yeah. just unacceptable. That is unacceptable. You cannot have technology in football and then, you know, it'd be there to help referees. And referees, firstly, we've only seen the screen used at the side of the pitch about three times all season. And secondly... If VAR get mistake, make mistakes, and then you know the match officials board have to come out after and apologise for three mistakes from VAR on the same weekend, it's just on. It's just not on. It's not on. So I was quite encouraged to see the news a couple of weeks ago that Pierluigi Colino, the head of referees at FIFA, is going to bring in sort of a blanket protocol for VAR. So every country will use yeah. VAR identically. I think that can only help for the good of the game. I think it will help the Champions League because, as we've seen, it seems that the rules in the Champions League and the way the VAR is implemented and even the handball rule is slightly different than, than what we interpret it as here in England. And also the World Cup. The reason there were no English referees at the 2018 World Cup is because we didn't use VAR. Uh, and so that that's the, that's the reason why. Um, and now, apart from the fact they're crap as well, but, um, but now, um, <laughs> you know, we've got VAR. Maybe we might see more... English, British referees on the European stage, on the world stage. Um, not that that really bothers the majority of fans, I don't think. I don't think they care what nationality the referee is, as long as the referees are consistent and decent. And that's not exactly what's happened with VAR. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it would be it's a cop out to say my red card for the season would go to VAR. I, I, I mean, I want it to be sent off. I don't think it will be sent off. I think it'll be a yellow card and it'll be changed slightly. Mm. And it has to be. I think VAR has to be changed. I think that's it, isn't it? It just it needs to be fit for purpose, and it's not at the moment. But it's not so much the technology itself; it's the way the technology is implemented that seems to be the issue. And there seems to be confusion as to how it's supposed to be used. So maybe the, the new regulations will sort that. I think just the problem is, just quickly, is if you say get rid of it now, people will say, "Oh, it's not fair. You've only given it a season. You've not given it enough time to kind of really bed in as an as an concept, as an idea." VAR. Um, give it a couple of seasons and then after a couple of seasons people go well, you can't get rid of it now it's too late it's here to stay so I mean yeah. where, where's that kind of apex of where do you decide to get rid or decide to stay on I mean the Premier League should have come out and said we're doing a trial season or we're going to trial it in the FA Cup or the Carabao Cup for what for what, or whatever you know um, and that never happened they, they tried it a couple of times last season I think in the Carabao Cup early stages um, but, you know, to go full hog into the Premier League without really any testing, rigorous testing of any sort, not allowing the players to get used to it, I think that was a mistake. Well, my red card is going to go... I was considering giving it to the phrase things you love to see on football Twitter because that winds me right up. really hate it. But I'm going to give it to Daniel Levy. I mean, as a West Ham fan, I'm pretty happy watching Spurs just never quite live up to the promise they show and capitulate at every opportunity. But I think Levy's now become a little bit of a pantomime villain at Spurs. Mean-spirited and he refuses to build on the key players they've got just when they look like they could make that next step by making a little bit of investment. He holds back that investment. And then this season, he does the ultimate pantomime villain thing and gets rid of Mauricio Pochettino and replaces him with the pragmatic dirge of Jose Mourinho which is just brilliant in its evilness almost so I think he's slowly painting himself into a bit of a corner with Spurs fans I wonder how long their patience will be but for me the the kind of final nail in the coffin for him this season the reason I think he needs to do one was the taking advantage of the furlough scheme and it clearly was a scheme that during the 
first few months of the coronavirus crisis, it was not intended for multi-million pound football clubs. And yet he took the decision to pay his staff using the government's furlough scheme. And I think that was a little... I mean, it, it backfired and he was forced to reverse the decision in the end. But I think it kind of says a lot about the individual that Daniel Levy is. All the while, he's taking his, and I forget the exact figure, I think it was around £5 million bonus from his work at Spurs. So for me, he can do one. Plus, if you give him a red card, if you send him away from football forever, that would be the perfect ending to that Amazon documentary they're making at the moment. Just kind of giving him the middle finger, sending him off down the M25. I think that would be the ultimate end for that doc. So, yeah, Daniel Levy, do one. Wow, scathing. (laughs) Tell you what, I think you'd have got long odds on Jim picking a rival club um, owner than the two, well, three absolute idiots he's got running his own club. (laughs) As in, you know, the Dildo Brothers, as they're called, um, Golden Sullivan. (laughs) And their little puppet, Karen Brady, who knows very, very little about football in terms of what she's said. But fair enough, it's your prerogative, Jim. You've gone for Levy, that's fine. Yeah, and it's changed my mind, don't I? <laughs> we'll, we'll have an additional podcast where it's just you ranting about uh, Golden Sullivan. <laughs> um, for me, I've gone for. I've changed my mind at the last minute, but I'll give what I've um, changed from, I'll give it a notable mention at the end. But. The thing I've gone for is the um, the five subs rule that needs to go, um, because the I think the refereeing board or the you know whoever it is that's made the rules has said that you can use five subs next season. Um, be, I don't I don't really know why. Um, I'm assuming it's something to do with you know the knock on effect of of not having much of a summer and what have you. But I don't think it's good for the game, and I hope that the Premier League don't. Um, adapt don't don't choose to to vote for these this five sub rule coming in uh, i don't think it's good enough um i don't think it's fair on everybody um i think it benefits the sides who can um you know the bigger squads and i know your bigger squads are better in football and everyone should aspire to have a, a nice big healthy squad but i don't think it's really realistic to accept anybody outside the top the top six having you know eighteen amazing players. I think you know you've got us. Then you've got to then dip into um, you know dip into you know the sort of youth mm. teams. If you're if you're the likes of you know Southampton, Newcastle, every everyone in that bottom half of the sort of Premier League would would be looking at eighteen uh, you know match day squad of of uh, of eighteen and thinking, well, oh, I don't really know. We can we can we can do this to play devil's advocate slightly on this then. And I kind of agree with you. I don't see why the rule needs changing from three subs to five subs. But if we are having five subs, if the bench is being made up potentially by a few of the fringe players, maybe some players for the youth team, is that ultimately going to help youth development when you can bring on a player? If a game's won, you can bring on your 17-year-old midfielder to give him minutes in the Premier League. Is there potentially a fringe benefit? There there? is, but that might happen to the teams in the bottom half because they're forced to do that. But if you're looking at like Man City or... Um, you know Chelsea or someone like that, and you know Liverpool, they're gonna be bring their fifth choice substitute. For example, at Man City, it might be like Jao Cancelo coming off the bench, or it could be you know Foden at the worst. I mean, it's not gonna be youth players every time. So I think maybe if if this rule has to come in, maybe say that 
you know, if you're gonna have, if you have to have five subs, at least two have to be youth developments of your team. Like they have to be in the youth team and they have to have come through the academy or something like that. But the quickest way to get rid to to adapt this rule is just to not adopt it at all. Just not, don't go for it. I don't think we need um, <laughs> five subs next season. I think. You know the players. the The season will be sort of stretched out to a normal way. I think most of the time you'll be playing once a week. You won't be playing twice a week like you have been um, in this restart period. So let's just go back to what we what we know um, and and see how it goes. I mean, if it if it if everyone starts getting injured, then you know you learn your lesson and you move on next year. But I don't think you should you should go for this five sub rule. But that's just mm. that's just my opinion. But the notable mention. <laughs> was because I can't go through a podcast without having a pop at Burnley or somebody from Burnley. Um, and my red card would, no, a notable mention would be for Phil Bardsley, who I, I mentioned a few weeks ago on the podcast when I realised he was still the Premier League player. I thought, how the hell are you still the Premier League Has player? Have you chatted up your missus or something at some point? Because you've got a real problem with Phil Bardsley. <laughs> oh my God. Imagine, imagine the scenes if that happened. <laughs> I challenged him to a boxing match, wouldn't I? Didn't he knock Rooney out in the uh, yeah in his in his kitchen that time? I just think it's just typical of Burnley. Like that's what they need. Like that's how it comes back to the five sub rule. I mean, Burnley struggled to get a team out. I think one team, um, one one of Burnley squads this season had I think was it fifteen or sixteen players for that. They couldn't get mm. eight subs, and it was like that's how that's how limited the resources are there. Um, and the fact that if they get a couple of injuries in defence, they're bringing in they're bringing in Phil Bardsley from from his retirement home in Sunderland. So you know he's he's one of them <laughs> who's it's like that that's why the five sub rule can't really work for everybody because not everyone has the resources mm. to go and buy you know players that can think that can come in and and sort of do a job. So I mean the the two the two dovetail well, but it is because I mean Phil Bardsley is. I just don't know he's a Premier League player anymore. Just a, just a quick one. I would red card also empty stadiums and fake crowd noise. I know we're kind of our hands are tied on that, depending on what the government ruling is and depending on how safe the country is in regards to coronavirus. But I just thought it was rubbish. The fake crowd noise being pumped on, it didn't work. I mean, I understand what the TV broadcasters were trying to do, but... You know, when someone heads the ball seven feet wide of the post, and then you hear the crowd cheer by accident because the sound man's pressed the wrong button, it just—it just—you may as well not have it there at all. It just winds me up a little bit, and I understand what it was there for. But why are we trying to change the narrative of the season? The season was suspended for three months. It will always be known as the season in which coronavirus suspended it, and which took twelve months to complete. So why are we adding fake crowd noise? We know that there's no fans in the stadium. Um, maybe it enhances a viewing experience for some, but for me. Just didn't enjoy it. And I don't like not being able to go to the game and, and, and watch football in the flesh. I mean, luckily enough, some people who are journalists and reporters get that opportunity. But, you know, this is the old sort of football fan of me that says football isn't right without supporters. And we've said that before. But, I mean, as a business and an industry, it does have to continue financially. There are implications if you stop playing games with no fans, um, which means it's pretty much impossible not to play behind closed doors. But there's one thing I would get rid of as soon as possible. If it's safe to do so, that would be empty stadiums. I think we might be stuck with that for the time being, unfortunately, but only time will tell. Right, we've got one more section of the podcast to come and we're going to be gazing into our crystal balls for that and making some predictions for next season. That is coming up on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. 
Spin like royalty here at kingcasino.com. Over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. Please play responsibly. BeGambleAware.org. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. It is the Football Social Daily end of season awards. We have two more awards to go and the first one is the sack race. Who is your tip to get the boot first next season? And it can't be whoever the next Watford manager is because we don't know that yet and it's too obvious a call to make. So who's going to get the boot first? I'm going to go first on this one because I've got an outside bet and a safe bet. So my outside bet, Marcelo Bielsa. Ooh. <laughs> I think he's done a great job I think at he'll Leeds. walk though, Jim. I don't think he'll I be think... sacked. If he's going to go, he'll walk. Well, yeah, that's it. That's the slight caveat. Because an eccentric character, I think he's spent longer at Leeds now than he has at any other football club in any other post. And I've just got a feeling something's going to happen. There'll be another spy gate or he'll have a big bust up with the owners or something. And his time at Leeds will come to an end. I don't know what it is. It's not going to be anything related to what happens on the pitch, but it'll be something that happens at some point. But safe bet, I think Roy Hodgson is going to be sacked from Crystal Palace. I think we've seen over the last few weeks since the project restart, the rot has really set in at Crystal Palace. They've been very public that they're not going to invest any money in the playing squad. So what is there possibly going to happen that's going to stop that rot? Wolf Sahar is likely going to leave this transfer window, which is only going to make their problems in terms of creativity and goal scoring worse. So I think they're going to get off to a terrible start next season. I think their form is going to be awful. And what do you do in that scenario? If you're aboard, even though Roy Hodgson is probably the perfect man for the Crystal Palace job because they're not going to recruit anyone better than him at the moment, I think he'll get the sack. And I think that will make matters much worse. They'll get someone else in. They'll do The form will dip even more and they will get relegated next season. So my prediction, first up in the sack race, is Roy Hodgson. And then he can retire and make Marley happy. <laughs> yeah, he's the oldest manager in the Premier League, isn't he, Roy Hodgson? I think you might have a shout there. I think Crystal Palace fans are keen to kind of see a bit of progression at the club. I think that's their frustration. So I wouldn't disagree with you there in terms of Roy Hodgson being one of the front runners to, to lose his job first. Um, we've mentioned Marcelo Bielsa, but like I said, I don't think he'll be sacked. I think Steve Bruce is another one that you'd, you'd throw up there just with the uncertainty around the Newcastle takeover. Um, how long are they going to be willing to, to stay put with him? I think he's earned another shot at, at managing the club for next season, regardless of what happens with the takeover. Marley might disagree with me, but I think in terms of the 20 clubs in the Premier League for next season, of course, we, we don't know who's going to come up from the championship in the playoffs, but certainly from the 19 that we certainly know are staying up in the top flight next season, I think Newcastle could be up there as a possibility. Um, I also think that an outside shout, not for the sack, but again to leave their job, is Nuno Espirito Santo at Wolves. I think that, you know, what he's done there at that football club and the way that they've had another successful season, they might still win the Europa League, you know, and get into the Champions League. So we'll have to wait and see what happens there. But he's had such a good season again. um, And since he's got them promoted to the Premier League, the club have gone from strength to strength. And I think that that's kind of risen his stock considerably. So I think that Nuno Espirito Santo might be a shout for, for another club to come in and try and poach him, whether that's in the Premier League or not. I'm not so sure. You know, you might see someone, uh, you know, a Champions League team in Europe somewhere, perhaps um, looking to Wolverhampton Wanderers and to Molyneux to try and poach Nuno. So we'll have to wait and see there. But I think if I was to choose between three clubs, it would be Wolves, um, uh, Newcastle and, and probably Crystal Palace like you say or maybe even Leeds yeah I'd, I'd probably agree with every every name that's been said so far especially uh, especially Hodgson um, I think he'll go um, but my my pick who I would expect to leave 
is uh, Slavin Bilic, who's obviously came up with with West Brom. Um, I don't think uh, he's, I don't think he's a bad manager by any means. But I just think when when things start not going that well for West Brom, which you would assume they will have a you know will have a dip next season, if not if not the whole season as a dip. But um, I think he will. Uh, the the pressure will be too much, and I think they'll they'll wield the axe before it gets too bad, and they'll give themselves a you know trying to give themselves a a chance of staying up if if they're flirting with that relegation zone. I think they'll be the ones who who take the um, who take the the plunge and, and get rid of him. Um, another one similar to that, I think Dean Smith. Um, I think if he'd have gone down this season, I think they might have looked at him. And, and left and you know he'd, he'd have either left or they'd have, they'd have you know, pulled the trigger on him um, I don't expect Villa to do anything more than they did this season next season I think they'll be fighting relegation um, I don't see them doing enough in the transfer window to to push them any higher and any closer to the top half um, so I think he could be he could be in line for a for a, a sacking um, Bruce is never far away. I mean, Bruce is obviously Bruce is never going <laughs> to be the most popular guy. Um, and also, if the takeover goes through, you'd expect him to get his P forty five as soon as the money hits the bank account, um, and the name above the door gets changed at Newcastle. But as an outside shot, um, I would pr- <laughs> I would pick uh, Jose Mourinho at Spurs, and I don't really have anything to base it on other than the fact that you are never more than six months away from a complete Jose Mourinho meltdown um, and Spurs aren't you know Spurs with their Levy you know with Levy in charge he's not the most um, easy character to work with and I think you know having uh, having Levy and Mourinho in the same club is kind of like having a a bath with the toaster just perched on the edge like it's going to go terribly terribly wrong at some point and if that is next season then Mourinho will go and uh, Spurs will have to pay him a hell of a load of money as they usually do when they'll sack a manager um, I don't think he'll get sacked though I think he'll do what he did at Manchester United and just try and like he'll try and yeah. get sacked he'll do everything he can he'll moan and he'll bitch in press conferences but it will be a case of him walking away from the club. I think. Yeah. Ultimately, well, either way, as long as he as long as he loses his uh, his his job, then it could be an outside shout. But you know, we're never far away from a meltdown with Mourinho, so he'd be the one for me. Um, who I would pick as a, maybe as an outside shout. But going back to um, Marcelo Bielsa, as you mentioned before, my be- my favorite thing about Bielsa is the fact that he left Lazio after two days in charge. Um, in back in 2016. Um, and he, he he took over <laughs> took over Lazio, and then two days later he quit and said that um, the club were unable to recruit the players he'd wanted, and he didn't feel that he's, he would be supported in the transfer window, which led to Lazio trying to sue him. Mm. And I don't I don't quite know how it ended up. But I don't know who won that legal battle, but that is the uh, that's the th- my favourite thing about Bielsa. So he's going to be an entertaining watch. I can't wait to see to see Leeds in the Premier League next season. Right, final award we're going to be handing out is the big call these aren't really awards they're more categories so the final thing we're going to be talking about is the big call we're going to have one big prediction from each of us ahead of next season marley you can go first uh well carrying on from what i've uh what i've just finished talking about i think Leeds are going to finish in the top half 
Is that a big call? Um, that doesn't feel like a big call. I well, cannot... I'll tell you what, off the back of that, let me say I think Leeds are going to be way worse than people think they are. I think they're going to finish in the bottom okay. five. I think that I saw someone say on Twitter they're going to dish out bloody noses everywhere. Are they really that good? Are they really good enough to do that in the Premier League? I mean, if you look at their squad and you think, really? I know they've got Bielsa, who's this football genius, but I mean, I suppose you could take a stock from what from what Chris Wilde has done at Sheffield United this season. But I think that they play a more similar style to Norwich than they do to Sheffield United, and I think mm. I think that would be my big call. I think Leeds United are going to be way worse than people think but I don't know go on Marley you finish your uh, point I just think the the way they play is is not similar to Norwich in terms of I mean you know short quick passing and, and high pressing is is kind of a a trademark of what they do however I think they do it to a much much higher level than, than Norwich did I think they've got a little bit more a little bit more steel than Norwich had, um, and I think also that they'll have much deeper pockets than Norwich um, did as well. And I think they'll support themselves this summer and buy some good players. And they'll buy. I mean, they're trying to get Ben White, I think, from Brighton, but that might not happen with them. Probably, you know, in the same division as the next season. So, um, I think they'll sign some some good players. I think if they get a top striker in, um, I think they'll they'll do they'll do well. And I can't I can't think of Leeds doing badly when I seen them completely pass Arsenal off the pitch in that FA Cup first half um, back in mm. January or February, whenever it was. I think it was the third round, so it would have been middle of January, I think. Um, and Arsenal did very... I think, still think that's Mikel Arteta, other than his FA Cup semi-final performance. I think that's the best Arsenal have played in that second half. And in terms of how Arteta turned it round, was a massive um, feather in his cap. For, uh, for what he did in his managerial career so far because Bielsa's team should have been 3 or 4 nil up at half-time. I think they hit the bar twice. I think, they hit, I think Bamford hit the post as well. Um, and I just think the, it just brought it home how how um, a clear philosophy and everyone pulling in the same direction can really cause problems. And I think they've got that... They've got the Norwich sort of fundamentals style of, you know... Passing and high pressing, but they've got the the um, the Sheffield United um, characteristic of everyone knows their jobs and everyone they're so well drilled that they'll they'll do it and do it and do it and I think they'll get more results um, as a as a basis of that and as a product of of how they play. I think it'll be interesting to see how they do next season. I've got a friend who's a Leeds United fan and he has been not even confident they'll reach the playoffs for most of the season. I don't think. They don't have the same swagger. They don't have the same uh, ability to just take teams apart that maybe even the likes of Norwich did coming up last season when they blew the championship away. So it'll be interesting to see how they actually do in the Premier League. I think it could go either way. So one of you is going to be right. It's either going to be top finish or disappointing, but we'll have to wait and see. My big call is, are you ready for this? Chelsea are going to win the Premier League. (laughs) Wow, that is a big call. That, that is, is a big that call. Is. I mean, the, the, the name yeah. of the category is the big call, and me and Marley have got done yeah. a, a medium-sized call, and you've gone for a <laughs> massive call. Yeah. Right, let, let me. Let I mean, me... In fairness, Jim Jim has fully understood the question here, so fair play. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me add some qualification to this seemingly outlandish statement because it was only a couple of days ago I was slagging off Frank Lampard <laughs> and saying that he's done a, a good job at Chelsea, but he hasn't done a great. He doesn't deserve as much credit as he's getting for the job he's done at Chelsea, but. That said, 
there's the beginnings of something really good happening at Stamford Bridge at the moment. And I think my feeling is that Liverpool might struggle next season, particularly with we, we talked about it last season, the intensity they play out and whether they can go again. I think there's an even bigger question over that this season with how short the break is going to be and whether they can keep up the form they're going into next season, not feel fatigued, particularly as the club are saying, essentially, they're not going to be spending a load of money. Then we've got Manchester City, who are the other obvious contenders for the Premier League title. And whilst Pep Guardiola is at Manchester City, they will always be there or thereabouts in terms of that title. But I think it's also obvious that they need a few key personnel to strengthen that team. They probably need a replacement for Aguero. They need a centre-back. And City haven't always got that right when they've recruited new players. So I think there is a question. They're favourites, but there's a question mark over Manchester City as well. Chelsea... This season, they've shown a really good mix of youth and experience. They've got some young players in that team that are only going to get better over the course of the next season. And they're making some really key acquisitions, some really exciting players in key areas. And they've got a really engaged or re-engaged Roman Abramovich in charge of that club as well. And he's been a little bit standoffish for the last few seasons. He's taken a bit of a back seat and maybe Chelsea haven't had the same investment as they would have in previous years. He seems like he's interested in that project again. And I think that could be key for Chelsea. It's because the government banned him, didn't they? Um, because yeah, of the Salisbury poisoning. <laughs> they banned him because of the Novichok poisoning in Salisbury. They banned loads of Russian diplomats, didn't they? So um, I think that's partly why that Chelsea kind of have not had the same level of interest in terms of his point of view over the last couple of years. But I think you're right. And I think, like, you know, the fact that a transfer ban could work in Chelsea's favour seems quite strange when you put it out there. But actually now... The fact that they've had a, a transfer window of not signing any players because they simply weren't allowed to, I think that's really put them in a good position moving forward into this transfer window where they may be able to make signings that other clubs might not be able to make. And we've seen the likes of Timo Werner already come in and, and Kai Havertz looks like he could be on the way. Um, Hakim Ziyech might be a really good signing. We'll have to wait and see on him. But but yeah, I, I think that's the that's the key for Chelsea is that they're in a position now where they are able to kind of strengthen in the summer transfer window where other clubs might not be able to. Certainly, mm. my concern would be, I don't think, I don't think your 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 statement is outrageous because Chelsea aren't going to win the league next season. But fourteen to one odds, oh, not get a tenner on Jim. That's all right. A few, few <laughs> beers, few beers down the old uh, dog and duck after the end of the season. But yeah, I mean, I think Liverpool they should be concerned about the fact they're not strengthening. Um, you know, the test of a really good side is to keep up the intensity season after season. They've done it for two seasons, Liverpool. Um, can they do it for a third? Well, they need to strengthen. They really do. And they've lost Werner to Chelsea. And yeah, I just think that's that's the kind of the old cliche, isn't it? Strengthen when you're on top. And if Liverpool don't do that, you just do wonder whether they might end up being catchable next season, more so than they have been this year where they've absolutely dominated. Did you have a, another big call, Niall? Or was Leeds underperforming your big call? Well... Leeds to be in a relegation fight is my big call because I think everyone in the football world is saying that they're not. Um, well, I just I just think it's dangerous to predict a team that's coming up to say that they're going to absolutely fly in the Premier League and be fine. Um, I think Marley's right. Top 10 probably is a big call, actually, uh, for Leeds. That's just a personal opinion. And I, I respect what they've done. And Marcelo Bielsa, the job he's done there, to stay there because he was going to leave after the first season where he failed. But he stayed there and finished the job. So you've got to take your hats off to him. Um, it's his first league title in 16 years as a manager. Leeds back in the Premier League for the first time in 16 years. So 
you know, it kind of all worked out nicely in terms of numbers and it's all come full circle quite nicely. I do think that if he stays at Leeds for another couple of seasons, it'll be the longest he's ever been at one club. And I do think if the wheels start coming off and Leeds start losing, Marcelo Bielsa, how's he going to be able to deal with that? Um, I don't know much too much about him, but his Leeds side over the last two years have been up and about it in the top end of the championship. Um, whereas now in the Premier League, it is a completely different ball game. So depending on what players they sign in the summer, we'll have to wait and see. But I do think Leeds will be more likely towards the bottom three and they'll be, I think they'll stay up, but I think they'll be in a relegation scrap for, for the season, like what we've seen this season with, with West Ham and even Brighton to an extent were down in there. So I, I think for me, that's what I'll see with Leeds. I'm not going to say they'll get relegated straight back down, um, but certainly I think that that's going to be, it's going to be a challenging season for them, no doubt. I'm disappointed I didn't make a case for Leeds to win the Premier League because if I had, that would have been all our bases covered because we predicted them to finish top 10, be in a relegation scrap, be able to be sacked. <laughs> if we'd just done the and- Premier League title, that's the full house. And you could have retired on the odds that you would get for <laughs> yeah, that. Exactly. Right. Thank you very much, Niall. Thank you very much, Marley. Cheers, guys. Thank you. That is the end of our look back at what has been a momentous season in the Premier League. I think it's safe to say, well, I hope to say there won't be another one quite like it again. And Football Social Daily will continue right the way through the summer, bringing you the latest transfer gossip, rumours and news from the Premier League before we get back up and running to seven days a week when the season resumes on September the 12th. Click subscribe so you never miss an episode and we'll see you next time. Football Social Daily. Spin like royalty here at kingcasino.com. Over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. Please play responsibly. Begambleaware.org.